Welcome to Season 9 of American Political History, Wars Within Wars, the War of Southern Natives against South Carolina. Although it is called the Yamasee War, it would be more accurate to call the war the War of Southern Natives against South Carolina, but that is too long a name for a war. Approaching from the north was a 1,200-strong war party of warriors from the nations of the Kabawada, Chira, Waxhaw, Waccamaw, and Santee Nations. In traditional native war strategy, they avoided fortifications and looked for soft targets. Their objective was captives and plunder. After a few days, they split into many groups pillaging the whole of the countryside. They surprised the Hart family plantation. That family had decided not to retreat to Charlestown, and the family was never heard from again. Another war party ambushed patrolling militia, They chose a spot where the militia had to march single file for about 100 feet, but they triggered the ambush early, firing the opening volley in the front of the column and failing to create a militia-wide kill zone. The native warriors retreated, but had killed 25. The remaining 75 militia counted their blessings that the ambush was not well executed and returned to Charleston, where they informed the governor of a large native war party. For three weeks, native war parties would plunder deep into the colony, only dozens of miles from Charlestown itself. After they had thoroughly plundered the countryside, they focused their attention back on the northernmost fortification. On June 5, 1715, the war party would appear outside the fortification of Skenking Fort. After a few hours of skirmishing, it was clear that the musket balls and arrows could not damage the fortification. The natives would send a messenger to Captain Redwood, who would agree to talk with a group of unarmed warriors. As a show of trustworthiness, Captain Redwood ordered his troops to store their muskets, while the two parties held talks. Sometime during the negotiations, the warriors suddenly drew hidden hatchets and attacked the disarmed militia. They killed 19 and captured 10 before they destroyed the fortification and continued their plundering of the countryside. On June 13th, Captain George Chickens received word from his scouts that a native war party was approaching their garrison at Weston Hall on the Cypress River. This was the same war party that had sacked Fort Skenking. They had become overconfident after their victory, even having their women and children accompanying them in the enemy's territory. Captain Chickens ordered his militia to sneak up and ambush the warband. They approached undetected while the warband was plundering a plantation. As the militia was positioning itself on all sides of the plantation, a native warrior walked into the woods to relieve himself, which forced the militia hiding there to prematurely attack before they had completely surrounded the plantation. They fired their muskets and charged in hand-to-hand combat, knives, hatchets, fists. The natives managed to retreat through the gap that was left open in the militia's lines. They continued running skirmishes throughout the rest of the day. With dusk, the natives escaped into the wilderness. Captain Chickens interrogated a few surviving captive warriors before killing them. The battle's losses was insignificant, one militia and a handful of natives. But the significance was that, with organization and coordination, green militiamen, laborers, and slaves had just managed the first victory on the battlefield against the feared native adversaries. The Creek Nation had mostly been on the sidelines up until that point. They had participated in the Good Friday Massacre, but it was not until June, after watching the Amacy enrich themselves with Carolina plunder, that they entered the battlefield. The Creek quietly rummaged through the abandoned plantations to the west and south of Charleston, gathering intelligence in South Carolina's defenses, fortifications, and watching the movements of its militia. When they saw a militia moving north, the creek seized the opportunity to attack. 
the Creek War Band arrived at the fortified plantation known as Willtown. This garrison, as well as all of the Carolina colony, had heard the story of Skin King Fort. They fired at the natives on sight. The Creek simply walked past the fortification, looking for easier targets to plunder. They raided along the Wadmalaw and Stono Rivers in present-day Charleston County. They destroyed the family plantations of the Blakes, Boones, Evans, Eves, Halls. The Creek Warbound got as close as 15 miles from Charlestown before retreating. That fall, after the harvest season, the Savannah Nation would pick up and move west away from South Carolina to avoid reprisals. The conditions in Charlestown were dire. Reverend Gideon Johnson's plantation was sheltering 105 refugees. And if you're thinking, these plantations must be large mansions, you would be wrong. These plantations were about the size of a moderate home today. In the cramped, unsanitary conditions, living shoulder to shoulder, diseases like malaria would begin to set in. More would die from disease than from bullets and arrows. The Carolina Assembly met again to discuss the situation. The cattle, rice, and Indian trades had collapsed. Little revenue was available to generate in support of a prolonged war. Geographically strategic points of entry into the colony needed to be secured and held with garrisons. The militia was short of arms and ammunition. If either the Creek or the Cherokee decided to conduct a full-scale attack on the colony, then evacuation would be necessary. And since all the merchants had been killed that spring, the colony was without intelligence of native movements or intentions. The last concern was that with all the best men serving in the militia that year, the fields had not been harvested. There was a high likelihood of famine before the next spring. In Whitehall, there was a standoff between the Lords of Trade and the colony's proprietors. The proprietors were attempting to get Whitehall to defend the colony in return for eventual foodstuffs, once the colony got back on its feet. Whitehall was unwilling to take any action, especially since the proprietors were unwilling to use their own funds to support the colony. And probably the largest hurdle was that no one in London could comprehend the threat at hand. The natives were on the brink of destroying an English colony. It was finally agreed upon that the proprietors would send a small ship full of supplies. And the divide between Virginia and South Carolina grew deeper when South Carolina sent slaves as a deposit for Virginia's militia, and in return, Virginia sent a militia so inexperienced that they didn't even know how to fire muskets. Despite their lack of resources and support, the South Carolina Assembly would choose to disband the militia that winter so the harvest could be completed. That winter, they would build a new army. The new army would be under the command of General James Moore. His colonels would be John Fenwick, Maurice Moore, and Theophilus Hastings, and George Chickens would serve as lieutenant colonel. They would fill the ranks of 600 white men and 400 black and native slaves. The owners would receive the compensation for the slave service. The army was organized into companies of 60 men. Each company would have a captain. White soldiers were paid four pounds per month. Slave companies would consist of 60 slaves and two white officers. Each slave owner would receive two pounds per month for the use of their slave. Native scouts who assisted the army would be paid a fur coat and three pounds sterling for every scalp they returned. The assembly then set out to reward the few natives that sided with them during the Good Friday Massacre. Newly made fur coats were given to Robin, king of the Itawan, Crowley, an honored Itawan warrior, John, king of the Winya, Cuffy, a Yamasee warrior who had given the colony early warning of the attack, was awarded 10 pounds sterling in a new coat. And when Cuffy died later that year, the assembly purchased his wife and daughter from the Burlinger plantation and freed them. 
several Tuscarora warriors serving in North Carolina's militia had their family members purchased and returned to them after their service to the colonies. As 1715 came to a close, it was remembered as a year imprisoned between mud walls, stifled with excessive heat, oppressed with famine, sickness, and the demolition of our country, death of our friends, apprehension of our own fate, despairing, destitute of any hope of escape. What Carolinians did not know was that the war had also caused the Yamasee great suffering. Unable to fully harvest their farms, they were on the verge of famine, and they feared the colonies would rally their strength together and come kill their men and sell their women and children into perpetual slavery in some far-off land. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating, and share the show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.